Welcome to the Ralston College Podcast. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Today's episode is a recording of a live online event, a lecture on H.G. Wells's novel, The Time Machine, by the great cultural critic Theodore Dalrymple. Herbert George Wells was a brilliant seer and prophet, but also a naive and shallow political thinker. Wells offers an instructive example of a literary genius who's divided between his views and his muse, his own personal perspective and his enduring, inspired vision. This tension between what someone feels he ought to think and what he actually does think is perhaps one many of us are familiar with, and it's brilliantly illuminated by Dalrymple in today's lecture. Dalrymple is also the teacher of Ralston College's first online course. It's a six-week course that explores a towering figure of English literature, Samuel Johnson, through a deep dive into his only novel, Rasselas, which he wrote in a single week to pay for his mother's funeral. This course is a wonderful introduction to Samuel Johnson's humane realism, and you can hear the whole novel read aloud by Dalrymple himself in an audiobook recorded just for this course. Check it out on our website. But first, here's Theodore Dalrymple on The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Thanks for listening. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. I could uh, listen to you describing me forever. (laughs) But ladies and gentlemen, uh, I should like to thank the uh, Ralston College for having invited me and thank you also to you for joining me. The first thing to say about uh, Herbert George Wells, H.G. Wells, is that he was a man of the most extraordinary brilliance. This is not to say, of course, that all his books are imperishable masterpieces, or that he was always right, or that he always behaved well. None of these things is true. But unfortunately, we live in times of what one might call a feat of clayism, when we seem to demand perfection of those whom we are prepared to call great. Uh, It is as if flaws detract from greatness or even abolish it. But this is a very impoverishing attitude uh, to human greatness. Wells was a great cad, uh, as he himself admitted, or sometimes a great cad, as he admitted, and as we shall see. But he was also a great writer and, in some sense, must have been a great man. It's worth uh, stopping a little to reflect on his undoubted brilliance, his genius, to use a a rather overused word, uh, because nothing, uh, either in his family history or his social circumstances, would have predicted it. He was born in 1866 on the lowest rung of the Victorian lower middle class. He was not quite of the industrial proletariat, but he had no known uh, talented forebears, and he also knew what uh, hunger was. Even when, as a result of hard work, uh, diligence, and a few lucky breaks, he became a student at the Royal College of Science, he weighed about 80 pounds, and rarely ate more than uh, twice a day. 
his extraordinary trajectory in life, which no one could ever have predicted, should by itself be enough to induce in us a certain modesty about our ability to know the future in any detail. Though Wells himself was often extraordinarily prescient about some things, as well as being extraordinarily foolish about some others. One of the lessons that Wells himself never drew from his own life was that he was born into a society that, though very class-conscious and indeed class-ridden, was also amazingly open. People often confuse a class with a closed society, and this is a very serious mistake. Wells relatively quickly ascended the social scale from, if not quite the very lowest uh, level, at least a very low level, to nearly the highest thanks to his enormous ability and his hard work. By the time he was 40, he mixed with the likes of Winston Churchill, Bertrand Russell, and H.H. Asquith, the eminent politician and future prime minister. He was a friend of writers such as Henry James, John Goldsworthy, George Bernard Shaw, and Arnold Bennett. By his late 30s, he was wealthy enough to employ CFA Voisey, one of the greatest architects of his day, to build him a large house. And of course, only an infinitesimally small proportion of the population was in a position to do that. It is, of course, uh, not abnormal for the problems and deficiencies of a society to appear more real to the people living in them than their virtues or advantages. And those who see advantages in their society are apt to deny its vices so that one either sees the society is dreadful in all respects or perfect in all respects. Now, nobody's experience is capable of only one interpretation. Wells, from his own experience, could have concluded that his society was an open one, with at least the virtue of freedom. But so alive to him was his past, and the obvious poverty and inequality, indeed injustice, that persisted, that he believed it had to be reformed uh, root and branch, and nothing preserved, reformed almost out of existence. Wells was irreligious in a society that still paid at least lip service to religion. He was a Republican in a society that was overwhelmingly monarchist in sentiment, albeit that, as Montesquieu long ago pointed out, the monarchy in Britain was a thinnish veneer over a Republican structure. And he was a ferocious critic of the economic system that so richly rewarded him for being, among other things, a ferocious critic of the economic system that uh, uh, richly rewarded him. He never suffered a moment's inconvenience for his publicly expressed views, quite the reverse, but it never seemed to occur to him how historically unusual it was to live in a society in which this was possible. I do not blame him for this, of course. Uh, we surely all assume that the conditions under which we live are perfectly natural. It is only after forcible change that we begin to think otherwise. Wells was always a socialist and a prominent a fractious member of the Fabian Society that included such luminaries as uh, Beatrice and Sidney Webb and George Bernard Shaw. He believed in uh, profound economic and social reform and transformation, such, for example, as that the state should pay a regular income to mothers irrespective of the paternity of their children. 
uh, for a section, but only a section of society, this has actually come to pass. And it has had uh, profound psychological and other effects, which Wells didn't really uh, think about. And he believed, of course, in a thoroughgoing redistribution of wealth to produce almost complete equality. He was not a Marxist, however, and had nothing good to say of Marx. But this was because Wells did not believe that the proletariat, however defined, would ever be able spontaneously to create a new and better order. What was necessary to achieve this new and better order was a disinterested and benevolent intellectual elite possessed of enormous technical competence. When he visited Lenin in Moscow in 1920, returning to write a book titled uh, Russia in the Shadows, he uh, called his chapter about uh, Lenin, The Dreamer in the Kremlin. And he approved of Lenin precisely because he thought he was not a Marxist. He thought he was a Marxist, but he wasn't really a Marxist. Rather, he was a radical technocrat of the type that uh, Wells thought was necessary. Come back and see us in 20 years, Lenin said, from which Wells deduced that Lenin was mainly interested in such things as electrification and could not have been both a technocrat and a fanatical ideologue who molded his ideology to justify his thirst for power and uh, to satisfy his overflowing hatreds. Socialists such as Wells, of course, are optimists almost by definition, in the sense that they believe that the schemes they propose will produce a great leap in human happiness and even improvement in human character. They attribute the sorrows of the world and all of the bad behavior in it to social and above all to economic arrangements. They believe that man is fundamentally good, but morally deformed by the circumstances in which he finds himself. Better or perfect social and economic arrangements will return him to his original goodness. This view has a perennial plausibility because societies are always very imperfect. There's always injustice to be found and improvements are always possible. For socialists, new societies, moreover, have to be built. And what has to be built has to have a plan or a blueprint. In a brilliant little pamphlet written for the Fabian Society in 1905, titled The Misery of Boots, Wells provides a rhetorical case for socialism. He was brought up in a kitchen basement he spent much of his childhood in the kitchen basement, whose window gave onto the street from which he could see people, but only their feet and lower leg go by. He had ample opportunities to study their footwear, therefore. And in the pamphlet written when he was 39, he enumerates the wretchedness of what he saw and the various miseries inflicted by defective um, footwear. It's a real uh, tour de force of description, taxonomy, and imaginative sympathy. There is chafing, for example, and there are problems with the soles uh, that are attached to the shoes by uh, nails and splits and leaks and so forth. And he had experienced all these problems with footwear as a child, as in fact I was destined to do many years later, uh, though I wasn't born into poverty. And it's interesting to reflect on why it is that we can now buy shoes that fit us perfectly. That was not possible when I was a child. 
Wells argues that it does not have to be so. It doesn't have to be that people have difficulties with shoes. The evidence being, for him, that the upper 10% of the population uh, do not suffer these problems from footwear. Uh, this is obviously unjust. It's obviously unjust that 10% should not suffer from uh, problems which 90% suffer from. And according to Wells, it comes about because of the unequal distribution or division of the products of human labor. With a better distribution and a motive different from that of making a profit in the production of footwear, everyone would be well shod. All that is required to bring this about is intelligent and disinterested organization, and thus is what socialists should aim at. There are no inherent or insuperable moral or intellectual obstacles to the achievement of this goal, though there will be political opposition to it, of course. And what is true of footwear is by extension true of everything else. In the pamphlet, uh, Wells writes the following. Socialism aims to change not only the boots on people's feet, but the clothes they wear, the houses they inhabit, the work they do, the education they get, their places, their honors, all their possessions. Socialism aims to make a new world out of the old. He tells us also that socialism is a common sense, matter of fact proposal to change our conventional admission of what is or is not our property and to rearrange the world according to these revised conceptions. Well, like Le Corbusier in architecture, Wells did not think in purely local terms. He wanted to incorporate the whole world into his schemes. Indeed, by the time he wrote his experiment in autobiography in 1934, when he was 68, it was clear that his political ideas were more important to him than his literary work. He thought they were more significant, uh, which had by then, in 1934, had become secondary to him. His literary work had become secondary to him and a branch of his political campaigning. And G.K. Chesterton said that he gave up being a storyteller uh, for a pot of message, uh, a rather brilliant remark. It seems to me likely that Wells is now mainly remembered to a large public uh, for his works of science fiction. Indeed, they are what launched him on his successful career. Yet in his two-volume autobiography of uh, about 900 pages, they are scarcely mentioned at all, certainly not as important landmarks in his life. It is almost as if he were ashamed to have achieved fame in this way. In this, he reminds me of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who was never happy that his world fame was attributable to his Sherlock Holmes stories, which he considered amongst the least important of his works from the literary point of view. In his autobiography, a mature work, remember, Wells writes, I have sought to show that in peace and war alike, a process has been and is at work, a process with all the inevitableness and all the patience of a natural force, whereby the great swollen, shapeless, hypertrophied social mass of today must give birth at least, at last, uh, to a naturally and informally organized educated class, 
an unprecedented set of people, a new republic dominating the world. It will be none of our ostensible governments that will effect this great clearing up. It will be the mass of power and intelligence altogether outside the official system of today that will make this great clearance, a new social Hercules that will strangle the serpents of wars and national animosity in the cradle. This was 1934, remember. Well, this is Wells in his full optimistic, even utopian political manifesto mode that seems to preoccupy him uh, by the time he came to write his autobiography, at least on the evidence of the autobiography itself. It's also, of course, uh, Wells in his full foolish uh, mode. But Wells was a far more complex man and thinker than such a passage might suggest. In fact, his mind was double, or perhaps I should say it, at least double. The other side or sides of his mind was or were deeply pessimistic and indeed misanthropic to a quite extraordinary degree. His misanthropy uh, went very deep and was sometimes of an almost Swiftian fury and degree of disgust. One of his late uh, fantasy novels titled Star Begotten, published in 1937, in that novel, the Martians try to engineer a race of intelligent earthlings as sensible and rational as themselves. They found uh, humans pretty foolish. One of the characters, a Professor Keppel, thinks this is all a very good idea, would be a good idea, because, as Professor Keppel says, I hate common humanity. I'm tired of humanity beyond measure. Take it away. This gaping, stinking, bombing, shooting, throat-slitting, cringing brawl of gawky, undernourished riffraff. Clear the earth of them. Well, compare this passage with a passage from Gulliver's Travels, in which the king of uh, Bromdignag responds to Gulliver's description of his countrymen, the English of the day. I cannot but conclude that the bulk of your natives to be the most pernicious race of little odious vermin that nature ever suffered to crawl upon the surface of the earth. Now, it might be said, of course, that an author's views are not to be confused with those of his character. But we know that Swift really was a misanthrope, even if his misanthropy arose from a kind of disappointment at humanity's weakness and folly by comparison with some kind of ideal vision of what it really ought to have been like. And secondly, however, we know that Professor Keppel's outburst that I've just quoted is in accordance with Wells' low view of humanity expressed elsewhere in his work. This is actually Wells speaking for himself. Again, it might be said that Wells was 71 at the time when he wrote this passage, and old age, after all, is possibly uh, an age of bitterness. I am a little older than Wells, but 70 is now the new 50, if not the new 40. However, as we shall see, Wells's view of humanity, certainly in the mass, was exactly the same or very similar when he first took up his pen uh, when he was in his 20s. There's another paradox in Wells's life and work that I might mention here. As we have seen, he believed in technocracy to solve mankind's problems. And technocrats uh, generally believe in the beneficial effects of science and technology. 
Having received an early scientific training, his first tutor was actually T.H. Uh, Huxley, Darwin's uh, bulldog. Wells remained all his life uh, very interested in science and often appeared gung-ho in his appreciation of the wonders it would work for humanity. There was no problem that did not have a technical solution. On the other hand, in his fictional works, technology is almost always a malevolent force in the hands of humans. It might be said that this is to find fault with humans rather than with technology, but since it is humans who have to use technology, it gives them power, and technology therefore magnifies the scope of human evil. And here Wells was often astonishingly prescient. In the very year to 1903, that the Wright brothers made the first powered flight in man's history, Wells predicted in fiction that such flight would be used in warfare in, among other ways, to bomb cities. A passage from the story in which uh, he predicted this is worth quoting. No one living, you know, knew what war was. No one could imagine, with all these new inventions, what horrors war might bring. I believe most people still believed it would be a matter of bright uniforms and shouting charges and triumphs and flags and bands. And in fact, this is precisely what people did think 11 years later in August 1914, when the First World War broke out. And one of these new inventions that Wells foresaw was the armored tank, 13 years before one was ever used. He very early saw the potential of bacteriology for warfare and predicted nuclear weapons before they were a gleam in any army or air force's eyes. In effect, he was predisposed by his deep-seated pessimism about humanity to foresee the worst consequences of technical advance. Notwithstanding the real threat of bacteriological warfare, however, bacteriological science has been overwhelmingly positive in its effect on humanity, uh, as positive as any technocrat could have wished. But this was not Wells's view of it. We come now to The Time Machine, which was published when Wells was 29, in 1895, and has never been out of print since and which must have sold in many millions of copies. This is not by itself a criterion of quality, of course, but it is neither, neither is it a criterion of triviality. The time machine ushered in a period of astonishing creativity in Wells's life. He produced The Island of Dr. Morrow, The Invisible Man, and The War of the Worlds, in which incidentally there is a description of a terrified, panicky population flight from London, which could have been a description of the exerd from Paris more than 40 years later in 1940, all within a space of three years. In the years up to the outbreak of the First World War, he produced a stream of long social realist novels that gained the admiration of, amongst others, Tolstoy, Gorky, Henry James, and Joseph Conrad, and which incidentally are still all in print. Now, I do not think it's an exaggeration to say that in our time, we are very worried about our societies breaking or splitting into two. And man being a dichotomizing being, he is naturally inclined to see sinister divisions in 
into two, whether or not they are um, fully justified by the facts. We think that there are those in our society who have benefited from globalization and those who have been left behind by it. Or there are though the metropolitan elites and the rest of society, or the 1% who own almost everything and the rest who own almost nothing, the middle having disappeared entirely. Or the somewheres, that is to say, people attached to a particular place and a traditional way of life, and the anywheres, that is to say, the cosmopolitans who have no attachment to place or even to culture, any particular culture, and who are equally at home in any large city in the world, their diplomas and fluency in English allowing them to work anywhere. Or liberals and conservatives who can now barely endure to be in the same room together. At any rate, we imagine our social fractures to be wider, deeper, and more acute than ever before. I do not know whether or not it's reassuring, but H.G. Wells imagined a division of human society into two branches, a division uh, far deeper than any known to us, inasmuch as it is projected so far in the future that it has become biological and speciated. Wells looked at his own society and saw what must have seemed to him like two societies in embryo. On the one hand, the society of mass man, and on the other, a refined and educated elite that lived well, which he had joined, of course, or wished to join. As a socialist, as he already was when he wrote The Time Machine, his sympathies should, of course, have been with the masses. But in his heart, they were not, whatever his head said. He tells us in his autobiography, that he always knew himself to be different from his fellows. Perhaps it was an awareness of his exceptional powers, in short, his genius, that made him so. At any rate, this gave him an almost aristocratic view of the world, and also tastes, in spite of the fact that he never forgot his lowly origins, and in fact made much of them in his novels, all of which contain large elements of autobiography. Perhaps this is the moment to mention that Wells was a great and successful womanizer. His success being somewhat surprising, since he was rather short, had the commonplace appearance of, say, a provincial accountant, and a voice that was far from imposing. Nevertheless, he was extremely attractive to women, and his taste was for exceptional rather than ordinary ones. His mistresses, including the writer Rebecca West, the reformer Margaret Sanger, and Mura Budberg, the Russian aristocrat, who had also been the companion of uh, Maxim Gorky, as well, perhaps, as many others. Wells was a believer in sexual reform and freedom, using his own life as a template. If he espoused uh, relaxed social relations in theory, no one at least could have accused him of having been a hypocrite in this regard. The question of whether what worked for him, although it didn't always make him happy, in fact, uh, would work for society as a whole never seemed to trouble him very much. But back to the time machine. It was written four years uh, before the outbreak of the Second Boer War, that's 1899, when a recruiting drive for the army revealed just how stunted and weakly were the males of the British urban working class such that they appeared almost a different type of being 
from their more prosperous fellow citizens. It wouldn't have required a recruiting drive for the army, for Wells, to have noticed or known this. Most of his fellow students at the Royal College of Science had been from solid middle-class backgrounds, used to three good meals a day as a matter of course, and he would have noticed the difference in propria persona, as it were. He wouldn't have needed statistical tables to convince him of it. Now, fast forward, as it were, by a few hundred thousand years, as Wells does in The Time Machine. As I've mentioned, the division in society in that book has become deeply biological. Wells, incidentally, was a keen supporter of eugenics, especially of the negative kind, which meant the weeding out of the unfit to reproduce. Uh, the technocrats, of course, to do the, the weeding out. Human beings in the time machine have uh, split into two groups, the Eloi and the Morlocks. The Eloi are clearly the effete and degenerate descendants of the educated, cultivated, and prosperous classes. They are vegans. Perhaps it's significant in this context that Oxford City Council has just decreed that all meals served on its premises should be vegan. They live overground and spend their time at play in the ruins of a civilization in which they show no interest or even awareness. They live entirely in the present moment. They are gentle, soft, well-mannered and giggly. Their life would be one of pleasure and ease were it not for the existence of the Morlocks. The Morlocks, the descendants of the proletarian masses, that is to say the men whose smallness the recruiting drive for the army revealed to a hitherto heedless middle class, live underground where they work the machinery more or less from inherited habit. They are carnivorous and emerge at night, seeking Eloy to drag below, kill and eat. But despite the fact that when night falls, the Eloy are frightened and know themselves to be in danger, they do nothing to protect themselves except sleep in groups. They are truly decadent, a bit like Western Europe, one's tempted to say, or, and, and one's also tempted to quote uh, Gertrude when she describes the death of Ophelia. Her clothes spread wide and mermaid-like a while they bore her up, which time she chanted snatches of old tunes as one incapable of her own distress. The Eloi are ones who are incapable of their own distress. They can't defend themselves in any way, whatever. And you might have expected a socialist to be sympathetic or at least even-handed an understanding towards the Morlocks as descendants of the proletarians. But while Wells, through his narrator, of course, recognizes virtues in the Eloi, although they're clearly degenerates, he is appalled and horrified by the Morlocks. Perhaps as residents of the gracious squares of London or, or Belgravia would have been horrified and terrified of the denizens of Whitechapel of the time. The Time Machine, incidentally, was published only seven years after the murders committed in Whitechapel by Jack the Ripper. Wells is physically revolted by the Morlocks. They're repellent, so much so 
that in the words of the narrator, I long to kill a Morlock or so, very inhuman, you may think, to want to go killing one's descendants, but it was impossible somehow to feel any humanity in the things. And here, again, it might be worth remarking that only four years separate the time machine from Conrad's heart of darkness with its exterminate the brutes. Explaining the bifurcation of humanity into two species, a very different character, the narrator says something that those of us who fear for the future of the West might read with a certain discomfort. I grieve to think how brief the dream of the human intellect has been. It has committed suicide. It has set itself steadfastly towards comfort and ease, a balanced society with security and permanency as its watchword. It had attained its hope to come to this at last. Once life and property must have reached almost absolute safety. But, and this is what uh, Wells goes on to say uh, through his narrator, of course, it is a law of nature we overlook that intellectual versatility is the compensation for change, danger, and trouble. Nature never appeals to intelligence until habit and instinct are useless. There is no intelligence where there is no change and no need of change. Only those animals partake of intelligence that have to meet a large variety of needs and dangers. Be that all as it may, it is important to remember that Wells's distaste, to put it no higher, for the masses, is not that of some highly privileged person, such as the Duke of Wellington, lamenting the advent of the railways because he cannot see the reason why the common people should indulge in unnecessary journeys, spoiling everything in their path. Wells is bone of the bone of the lowly, in fact. It is important also to realise that Wells, at least in this mood, while writing his great books, does not think that the horrors of man in the mass are purely contingent in the sense that they might be easily rectified by a little light social engineering or even a lot of heavy social engineering, such as he often recommended in what I am tempted to call uh, another life. In the island of Dr. Moreau, which was the book that he wrote after The Time Machine, a brilliant but unscrupulous medical scientist, Dr. Moreau, tries to make men of beasts on an isolated secret island. His methods involve great cruelty. At the time, be it remembered, when there was much controversy over the uh, ethics of vivisection. Moreau, a technocrat if ever there was one, succeeds only in creating creatures that are neither man nor beast. The narrator manages to escape Moreau's island and returns to London. And here are his reflections on his return. Then I look about me at my fellow men, and I go in fear. I see faces keen and bright, others dull or dangerous, others unsteady or insincere, none that have the calm authority of the reasonable soul. I feel as though the animal was surging up through them, that presently the degradation of the islands will be played over again on a larger scale. In other words, the beast is always lurking not far below the surface. 
and who, examining the history of the subsequent century, that is to say the 20th century, would be prepared to go to the state to deny this. It is not only in what he called his scientific romances that Wells displays a mind not wholly in accord with his socialist agitation. I will take only uh, one case, a book uh, that some have taken to be his uh, masterpiece, Tono Bungay. The title comes from a fraudulent proprietary medicine called Tono Bungay, from which the narrator and protagonist and his uncle uh, temporarily make a huge fortune. But just as the late Marshal Mobutu Sese Seko of Zaire pointed out that it takes two to be corrupt, so the victims of such a fraud as Tono Bungay must be willing, even wanting, to be deceived. Now, the narrator and protagonist of this novel, called Ponderevo, is, at any rate, to a large extent, Wells himself. In much of the novel, the parallels with his own life are simply too great for the book to be other than in some large part autobiographical, as were many of his other novels, in fact. There are reflections which cast doubt on the very possibility of the promised happy life that uh, reformers, socialist reformers, such as Wells himself in other moods, hold out. In the book, the protagonist, like Wells himself, has an extramarital affair which fails to satisfy him because it is, in essence, a physical fling. Wells, or Ponderevo, says, I had thought I might be going to some sensual, uh, sensuous paradise, but desire which fills the universe before its satisfaction vanishes utterly, like the going of the daylight with achievement. This thought alone should be enough to destroy the illusion that a contented life without dissatisfactions, disappointments, and so forth is possible. Though, as it happens, the protagonist's uncle, who has dreamed up the whole Tono Bungay scheme, says, with the author's obvious approval and agreement, that the provision of illusion is a public benefit and that illusion is really the only reality. This is very ill-assorted with the kind of optimism that Wells displays elsewhere. In the book, Wells demonstrates uh, considerable uh, self-knowledge. I'm talking now about Tony Bungay. He analyzes a failed marriage to a woman whose virtues he uh, doesn't see and whose feelings he fails to consider, except strictly in retrospect, uh, with enormous painful honesty. Perhaps it all comes to this, the protagonist says, that I am a hard and morally limited cad with a mind beyond my merits. Many would accept this as a fairly accurate characterization of Wells himself. But note that the word CAD implies the existence of moral standards and personal responsibility, that in what I've called another part of his life, he strenuously denied. It is not only society that forges a man, but himself. But that is what, in other moods, uh, Wells denies. If I may summarize then, I would put it like this. Wells, a man of great brilliance, contained, if not multitudes, though certainly more than uh, Whitman, at least deeply and irreconcilably different uh, mental tendencies and philosophical tendencies. 
There was, if I may so put it, an official part of his mind that put straightforward, supposedly rational arguments, mostly about the betterments of society and his fellow men. It was, of course, an optimistic outlook. All desiderata in human life were compatible according to this philosophy. But a bit of worldwide organization by technocrats, everyone could have the most comfortable footwear and everything else, of course. But at a much deeper, and I would say more sincere level, he was very pessimistic. And I would say, being pessimistic myself, more realistic. This disjunction, which uh, so many people, especially intellectuals, fail to recognize in themselves, is pregnant with disastrous consequences. But I leave you now with the, the thought that Wells's last book, a very slim volume, published in the year before his death, in the 80th year of his age, was titled Mind at the End of Its Teller. And it makes Schopenhauer read like Dale Carnegie or N Napoleon Hill. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tony, for that very provocative and illuminating lecture. I'm going to open up very shortly to questions here from the field, but I, I want to discuss, uh, if you are willing, Tony, a few passages and, and aspects of the book. One of the most moving aspects of this, at least for me, is, is the sense in which, despite this tension in Wells himself, which you described in the notes that we shared with our audience in advance of this lecture, this tension between what he thought he ought to think and what he actually thought, which you know perhaps he was not entirely himself even conscious of in his own thinking. I just find this an astounding aspect of, of the time machine, the sense that he has this kind of prophetic sort of prescience of the absolute disaster of this kind of technocratic regime from the same, you know, the same person who foresees this disaster is also the the advocate of the means of that very disaster. And I want to, so I want to begin with this question about the not simply the tension in him, but how should it remain possible that Wells, the artist, would be able to envision this outcome, as it were, in a kind of artistic sensibility? perhaps even unconsciously, of the very technocratic prescriptions that he would advocate? Well, I think he's only a very extreme case of what is fairly common, actually. That uh, I mean, I, I don't know whether you've observed this, but you, people often talk in uh, theoretical terms, theoretical terms about politics, when their lives are completely at variance with what they're saying. So this ability to, if you like, compartmentalize your mind so that on the one hand you've got, shall we say, humanitarian ideas and sentiments, on the, on the other hand, a real, a real dislike of the reality uh, of humanity is actually extremely common. And it's, it's a very, I mean, in Wells, of course, it's, it's taken to an extreme. But that's, in a way, what makes him a very interesting case, because he is a highly intelligent man, I mean, a brilliant man, actually, who appears to be unable to see this in himself. And you could say that this is 
very common thing in our age. Whether it's more common than it used to be, I don't know. I suspect that it is, partly because of the increase in the number of intellectuals or people who have gone through tertiary education. Yes, and there's a very clear statement of that problem, let's say, in my version, which I don't presume is anyone else's, there's a very clear statement in, let's see, it's in, uh, well, I won't be able to point you to all to a, a place, but it, uh, just so you know, it's in fifth chapter. He says, the exclusive tendency of richer people do no doubt to the increasing refinement of their education and the widening gulf between them and the rude violence of the poor he says, is already leading to the closing in their interest of considerable portions of the surface of the land. Uh, but then he continues and he says, and the same widening gulf, which is due to the length and expense of the higher educational process and the increased facilities for and temptations towards refined habits on the part of the rich, will make that exchange between class and class. And then he continues. So he he clearly has his his, his as a hold on what he regards to be the role of the higher educational influences in precisely this bifurcation that he yeah. anticipates. And, and then, then people are increasingly able, if you like, to theorize away what they actually see. So what they see is, shall we say, they don't see someone misbehaving. They see the alleged causes of someone misbehaving because that's how they've come to view the world. So yes, the causes are actually, the causes, the supposed causes, I'm not saying they are the causes, but what they suppose are the causes are more real to them than the actual behavior they see before them. Yes, that's a brilliantly put, Tony. But of course, that's only, it seems to me that's a situation that's only possible when you have the luxury of a certain kind of isolation of at least short-term immunity from the consequences of your own actions or your own ideas. It's a situation only possible to maintain when you, you are at some distance from the problems that you are analyzing and isolated, as I say, from their, the consequences of that very uh, mode of analysis. Yes, it's both a mental and a social or physical distance. I mean, you can live actually very closely physically to somewhere and yet be mentally completely distant from what is going on around you. Actually, it is not an entirely new problem. Thackeray, when Mayhew's Life of London Poor uh, was published, and, and when he read it, he said, um, you showed us what we could have seen on our doorstep, but we never did see it. So, I mean, I think it's a, partly, of course, it's a natural human tendency not to want to see problems which, if you see them clearly, are overwhel of an overwhelming size, especially when you don't feel you can do anything about them. Yes, and I, I do think this is a, I mean, it's not by any means an original thought, but this does seem to be hugely prevalent right now in a certain kind of intellectual class of those who take upon themselves to suggest how society ought to be run or what the regulations or rules ought to be. And these coming from people who have very often never you know, slaughtered an animal or needed to defend the country or done anything with agriculture or run a dry cleaners or or delivered an Amazon package or or any of these things. And so it does seem that this isolation is an 
essential aspect of being able to maintain ideas of which that don't work in in practice, let's say. And and allow you to distance yourself mentally from the most obvious phenomena around you. Yes. Well, I want to turn in a minute to ask, you know, what the antidotes of this are, but I want to want to do that in in two different ways. The, the first is perhaps it's the same question, but I want to begin perhaps in two different forms. The first way I want to ask is, what is the antidote to this distance? I mean, we see it all around us growing. It's clearly a problem. There's lots of commentary. This is not original to point out the fact that we're currently in a moment when you know we have this great divergence of, of the sort of the technocratic quasi, at least claim to be intellectuals and those who are you know actually making and delivering things. How does one close that gap and avert the problems that it must inescapably lead to? Uh, well, I have no technocratic solution to that. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, all I can say is I uh, keep on drawing attention to the often absurd theories that people have about uh, the problems they see around them. But I'm not, I'm not sure I, I have the solution. It's a very good question. I never have any solutions to anything. Well, so, <laughs> Well, let's deepen the question there, because I know the very depth of your critique is a kind of an answer, the clarity you bring to these these questions. I want to bring our attention to the last, uh, the second last full paragraph in the seventh chapter, which is just absolutely devastating and chilling uh, in my view. And I want to introduce this by suggesting that one of the dominant characteristics of a very widespread worldview anyway, is that uh, reality is a construct. You know, it's infinitely malleable. So all we need is to get, as you were saying about the shoe problem, all we need is to get is the right technocrats on it. And, you know, the problems will simply disappear. There's no, let's say, non-negotiable aspects of the real that we're always going to bump against, whether we like it or not, and no matter how good our technology is. And that, you might say, what the Greeks would have called necessity or you know, you say, think of Poseidon with regard to Odysseus's endless machinations, you know, that, that which cannot be simply outsmarted. Of course, we see this in the Oedipus cycle very clearly. That which will impinge upon us whether we like it or not, which surely any true rationality would have to take account of, right? Because otherwise it's a, it's a kind of pretend rationality. It's not actually thinking about the world in its objectivity and brute necessity. It's a kind of imagined world that it is simply playing with. There's this wonderful and chilling passage here. Then I tried to preserve myself from the horror that was coming upon me by regarding it as a rigorous punishment of human selfishness. Man had been content to live in ease and delight upon the labors of his fellow man, had taken necessity as his watchword and excuse. And in the fullness of time, necessity had come home to him. One hopes in some way that the problems we see through this division might be averted before disaster strikes. But perhaps in a sense, even to have our attention drawn to the problem is already the work of that necessity, a kind of epiphany of its own, drawing us to see something that we can seriously then turn our attention to and think about. And your lecture is a wonderful example of that. Would you like to say anything further about this 
problem well, before I mean, we move on. Two th- there are two things there. I mean, one perhaps is not very optimistic, is that millions of people have read The Time Machine. In fact, probably uh, the vast majority of people who have read anything have read The Time Machine. So it hasn't had the dramatic salutary effect that one might have hoped. And the second thing, it, it does occur to me to examine a little, uh, since I mentioned the problem of footwear, uh, why it is that we don't have this problem of footwear. Now, I don't know, I mean, you're younger than I. When you were young, did shoes fit? I don't think I have ever not been able to find you know, well-fitting shoes in my lifetime. When I was young, it wasn't expected that the shoes that you put on uh, first time uh, fitted. I mean, you had to go through the blisters and the uh, and so, and so on, and, and the difficulties that actually Wells describes extremely well, very cleverly. And um, buying a new pair of shoes was, uh, for, for me, not a very pleasant activity. I mean, and... Uh, and shoes were like cars. I don't know whether you remember that. When you bought a car, you're probably too young to remember this, but cars had to be run in. You weren't allowed, or you're not supposed to go more than 30, 30 miles an hour for, I can't remember how long, for a 1,000 miles or three months or whatever it was, so that, uh, I don't know, so that the engines ground into um, into the right shape or something like that. And we've that we've forgotten. So shoes were very much like that. Now, the question is... Why is it now I can just go and buy a pair of shoes and I'm absolutely certain that I'll find a, a well-fitting and very comfortable pair of shoes? And the answer to that, I, I mean, I don't know what the answer is, uh, why we didn't have that in uh, between 1950 and early 1960s, but we didn't. And I suspect that the answer is, in a way, a technocratic solution to the problem. The technology of shoemaking must be very much better than it was in those days. But the technocracy was not under central control. Mm. It was, well, under the discipline, if you like, of the marketplace. And obviously, well-fitting shoes were going to sell much better than shoes that pinched and caused you agony. So what I would say is, I mean, I don't want to despise technological, technical improvement. That would be absurd. So I suppose the question is, who is the technology or the technological advance controlled by, or how is it controlled, if it's controlled at all, and what's it used for? Well, I think this, of course, raises many very fundamental questions Uh, Some of these, just by way of uh, perhaps possible interest to some of our listeners, I will note that I have engaged on these very questions just recently with the technologist Paris Chopra, rather, on a site called Paragraph. But the the question that Paris and I were were, were there looking at is the moral crisis of technology. And I don't want people to think we're getting distant from the text because this is really directly related. And I think what we need to acknowledge about technological thinking or technocratic thinking is that it's always instrumental. It's always about thinking how can we best get or fastest get or cheapest get or most efficiently get from here to there. But that kind of technological or technocratic instrumental thinking is absolutely unable ever to evaluate the ends themselves. That takes a different kind of thinking, a deliberative, let's say dialectical thinking, a discursive thinking that is meditating on the nature of the ends themselves. And these are 
utterly distinct. And so, you know, the one question that technology can never solve is the ends to which it should be put. And so one doesn't in any way have to be down or low or slow on technology, but rather cautious of the kinds of hubris that we see in the Greek tragedies about thinking that the technocratic thinking can ever be adequate to sustain or delineate a human life. And I think it's a almost too easy a thing to point out in our current day, but certainly seems to me that many of the ill-advised and very quickly devised COVID regulations were very much in this direction. You know, the notion of putting, you know, masks on young children, for example, at the very moment in time when they were learning to speak, you know, the notion that we wouldn't have thought that this would have consequences that we might not have been able to anticipate, but that we should have had the humility to ask about, you know, speech therapists now saying a huge increase in the, the number of children they see with what they would regard as absolutely perilous developmental problems, not knowing, for example, that you have to put your tongue, you know, between your teeth to make a the sound because they can't see it. So the, the point is, and this is not in any respect to go on a on a political tangent, but rather to point out the very widespread assumption that a technocratic solution, even to a pandemic, could ever take a kind of primary role in the overall organization of our society is precisely to fall into the logic that that Wells is here cautioning us, even perhaps against his own political sensibilities against. Yes. But there is, a, given the wonders of technology, there is the the temptation to think that uh, all problems can be dissolved away by uh, technical means. And we see it, for example, the career of cognitive behavioral therapy is an example of that, where people think that actually people can be, that there is some psychological technique by which people can become happy and dissolve away all their problems and there aren't any real problems that exist i mean the, ultimately it's all a question of um, of our attitude to them and we can change our attitude to them um, well i want to i want to ask you one final question before i turn to the audience we've got lots of audience questions here thank you all for sending those in please keep them coming i'll get through as absolutely many as i can what are the temptations tony about this that is a consequence of coming to see this bifurcation uh, and the problems with the sort of intellectual technocratic elite versus those who are making things and making those conditions of life possible. And this is often always, to me, nearly always present in any awareness of a dynamic that is problematic is to make the mistake of thinking that it's always outside. It's someone else. Well, you know, Stephen Blackwood sees this, but he wouldn't be guilty of that, you know, uh, technocratic intellectualism, uh, rather than to say, wait a second here, to what degree am, am I committing the same mistake that I'm seeing in others? And so what I want to ask you about before we move to the audience questions is to leave the big dynamic aside, you know, big problems are hard to solve. Perhaps they're unsolvable or only through self-developing things over, over time and have the humility to see that is, is essential. But what I want to ask Tony is, in your own life, in your own observation of others, what helps to awaken one or to cure one of precisely that kind of hypocritical self-delusion? Uh -huh. Well, of course, I assume that I'm free of it myself. 
you seem to assume that I'm a friend. At least you've made that assumption for no, me. No, not at all. Only that we all are aware that there are moments when we come to see that we were wrong about something. And perhaps we, and we, of course, never reach some promised land of perfect clarity. But what I'm asking you is, what are the habits or exercises or disciplines or modes of contemplation or practice that you have found helpful in that regard? Well, that's a little bit difficult because it's a bit like the question, how do you become interested in something? You know, I can't say how I became interested in things. Um, and I can't remember a time when I wasn't interested in things. Uh, I can't actually really describe the development of it. But I suppose reading uh, literature is one of the ways of being more realistic about uh, not falling too much for uh, technocratic uh, solutions. Of course, we, we don't read much literature now, or we don't teach it much. Um, but I don't think anybody could be guided through a few plays by Shakespeare and come to the conclusion that uh, technology will solve everything. So I suppose that would be a kind of, if you like, uh, immunization against too simple a view of human life. If, of course, you know, when you people are young, they do need some guidance uh, in this matter. It's, uh, so if they have teachers who are uh, not too ideological, then if, they, then if people were taught a few plays by Shakespeare, I think they would come very rapidly to the, uh, to the view that uh, there is no simple solution to the problems that confront people in their lives. Yes, thank you very much, Tony. I'm going to move now to the first of many questions I hope that we'll get a chance to get through. First, one listener asks, it is frequently observed that present-day adolescents are often polite to the point of docility. Is this somehow connected to their lack of knowledge about the past? And why does it now seem to be desired by many that the young not know too much about the past? Well, I'm not sure that docility is the first characteristic I've noticed in adolescence. Again, I think they, perhaps they divide, should I say, into two, those who are docile and polite, sometimes um, to an alarming degree. Uh, but there are also quite a lot of adolescents who are the reverse of that. And perhaps this is another example of dichotomy that has uh, developed. As to why people want to, to sever people from any, not only the past, but any sense of the past, not even the sense that the past is important, actually. And this has been done to, an, to a degree that is astonishing to me, in the sense that uh, I used to ask patients, for example, to name, not a very difficult question, name a British prime minister other than the present one. And they would say, I don't know, I wasn't born then. So the idea that one should know about something other than one's own particular lifetime and the little bit of the world that, uh, that uh, one knows by acquaintance, that idea has disappeared. Uh, one could say, if one were conspiratorially inclined, that such people are extremely easy to control. Yes. I mean, I don't suppose there's been a committee anywhere uh, sitting down saying, well, how are we going to 
to uh, control the population. Uh, let's make sure they have no awareness of the past. I'm going to continue with another question. Thank you, Tony, that is related here. It's a, it's a series of a few restatements of the same question in different ways. And I'm going to read a couple of them just so people get a sense of the question. First, is there a connection between Wells's socialism and his espousal of eugenicism? Second, what is the origin of the idea that social and scientific experimentation can justify extreme cruelty? Where does this doctrine lead? And related to this, is it possible to love people and hate the family? And finally, in the same spirit, one wonders whether those who share Wells's worldview love humanity but hate individual people. Is this true? And why might one be drawn to such a view? So a series of questions about yeah. you know, the abstract of humanity and the individual particularity. Can you love people and hate the family? Uh, is there a connection between socialism and eugenicism and so on? Well, with regard to socialism and eugenicism, I suppose the thing that connects it is a kind of completely utilitarian view of life. Uh, so the if your attitude is that uh, what is right is to produce the greatest good for the greatest number, then you can conceive of almost any horror as being uh, justified, because ultimately, and of course, the the good the good is in the future, the evil is in the present. But because we uh, intellectuals are so good at uh, screening out the immediate reality in favor of some kind of theoretical construct. To them, the, uh, the future is much more important than what they have in front of them now. And of course, you, you can easily construct arguments for eugenicism from a socialist point of view, but it's not the only point of view from which a eugenics uh, can be derived. I mean, there are many different points of view that can lead one to support uh, eugenics. But it's not alien. It's certainly not alien to socialists. And, and, and of course, uh, uh, Wells was far from the only socialist who was in favor of eugenics. Uh, uh, Bernard Shaw was too. And in fact, uh, the Swedish Social Democrats actually practiced eugenics up till the 1970s. Well, I, I think this really does you know, get to the heart of our, let's say, our conversation today and also our cultural moment in many respects insofar as once you surrender to a kind of notion of technocracy that is unreflective, there is nothing that can't be justified from the standpoint of, you know, perceived efficiency or whatever ends the technocracy regards it to have. Now, of course, it needs to be pointed out that technocrats and technocratic thinking can never assign its own ends. That belongs to a different kind of thinking. You know, you can get a computer to solve a problem, but you have to tell it what is the problem you want it to solve and how and what are the rules according to solve it. But, you know, you can, and I think COVID is a very illustrative example here because you still have to stand back and say, well, what is the actual goal here? And what will all of our efforts be made subordinate to? And once you once you fall into saying, well, the only goal is, I don't know, the eradication of a certain disease, and if everything else is to be subordinated to that, well, you can come very quickly to very inhumane outcomes. And that's true of any particular goal that you might set, uh, which only goes to point the necessity of a kind of thinking that can think seriously about what the 
the deeper, fuller goals are, so we know what the technocratic processes need to be subordinated to. Well, in, in what you're saying is really we need a, a polyphonic kind of uh, thinking rather than just uh, humming a simple tune, which is, in the case of COVID, is just uh, we must have as few cases and as few deaths from it as possible, and anything, anything, is justified by by that aim, and. Perhaps also there's a, a feeling that all aims must be fundamentally compatible. Uh, so there's no sense of the tragic. There's no sense yeah. of the no sense that, uh, unfortunately, we often have to choose between two things which are undesirable. Yeah. Uh, no. That yes. No. It's, that's exactly right. And the losing sight of the fact that, in some sense, saving. The effort to save a human life can't be more important than human life itself. That sense that there has to be an end to life that is outside of the technocratic aims of, of improving it. That improvement can only be undertaken in light of a deeper analysis of what human life is in the bigger sense for or what makes it worth living. I, turning to another question here, what questions does the time machine raise about contemporary notions of progress? Well, ultimately, it would say that progress leads to its own dissolution if uh, progress is deemed to be um, the end in itself. So, uh, I suppose uh, if we take the Morlock, uh, the sorry, the Eloy, as we've seen, then they have degenerated because there's been such progress that uh, their life has become easeful and without problems and without any larger aim. So in other words, progress uh, can destroy itself. Related to this question, the questioner asks, in what ways does the time traveler reflect Wells himself? What exactly is his objective in painting the picture of this disturbing future, if he has one? And why is it disturbing? Why exactly is it unsettling to read? Well, I think uh, it's unsettling to read for pretty obvious reasons. <laughs> and it's, uh, but actually, if you remember, the uh, Wells goes on, he progresses in the time machine to the point where all human, anything even vaguely resembling human life no longer exists. And, uh, and uh, humanity has been, well, descendants have been wiped out. And in his last book, Mind at the End of His Tether, Mind at the End of Its Tether, he says this is the end of human existence. The human existence is inevitably coming to an end. The world or the human world is coming to an end. I'm not sure that he doesn't think it's a, a rather good thing that it doesn't come to an end. So he's got, a, if you like, a second law of the thermodynamics view of the thing, uh, dissolution is inevitable, and so on and so forth. So I think it really does. I mean, he was 29 when he wrote The Time Machine. And when he was 80, he was, in essence, writing the same thing. So it obviously does represent uh, what uh, Wells really thought. And I mean, I think probably many people would differ on whether the thought that uh, human existence is inevitably fleeting, I mean, not individual human existence, but human, all human existence is fleeting. Does that mean it has no meaning? 
if you know that you know humans are going to die out in a hundred thousand years, shall we say, what effect does that have on your view of the meaning of existence? Especially when we, if you look, we think that two thousand years ago is an immense amount of time ago because we compare it with our own individual lives, and it's a lot of generations ago. But it's a second in the life of the Earth. But it, it's interesting. It's the wrong uh, level of analysis because the, the <laughs> our lives are not lived, you know, uh, at the two thousand year span or the billion year span. They're lived here and now. And it's one of the things I found most touching about the the time machine were these moments where individual particularity broke through. And one of them actually has to do with shoes. You know, it, I didn't know what you had said about the difficulty of finding shoes in Wells' own life uh, or indeed in yours. But of course, one of the really sort of jarring moments in this that at least I very much identified with the with the time traveler in is this moment where his shoes are breaking down. And of course, though most of us have access whenever we need them to shoes that fit us, most of us have nonetheless also had the experience of walking too long in a pair of shoes or having ill-fitted shoes and the really debilitating discomfort that that can cause. And so I thought that it's very interesting that there's this moment where he gives you this image of the time traveler's own kind of irreducible human particularity, you know, the non-negotiable reality of this individual human life even, you know, however many years in the future. And there's a similar moment, I think, in the the relation with Weena that, you know, something breaks through there, you know, his disregard and disdain, the, 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 as it were, undifferentiated character of this bifurcated human race. But then in those last lines, which I find in a way very moving, despite this vision, when he has these flowers in his pocket. And again, the particularity of the flowers, the irreducibility, not kind of just flora and fauna in the abstract, you know, these abstract nouns, but no, these two flowers being what, what authenticate and ratify his relation to this experience as having really happened. And here he says in these last lines of the epilogue, and I have by me for my comfort, two strange white flowers, shriveled now and brown and flat and brittle, to witness that even when mind and strength had gone, gratitude and a mutual tenderness still lived on in the heart of man. And I wondered if you would uh, comment on that uh, human particularity that seems to break through in this novel. Yes, I mean, one of the things that is interesting is the contrast between the um, warmth and comfort of of the time traveller's home and the uh, sociability of the people who come to the house. And one feels that whatever happens, that is worthwhile in itself. It's worth living just to have that kind of sociability and existence. And so, in a sense, it doesn't matter that it, you know, 800,000 years 
hence no one will remember it or no one will be able to have the same kind of experience. The experience is worth having in itself. And therefore, uh, you don't have to uh, justify it by saying that uh, this will continue forever. The, I, I mean, I must say that the, the relationship with Wiener is, if you like, a little bit uh, contradictory to the uh, nature of, of the Eloy, because, of course, one of the things that they become is like clones of each other. They're incapable. Of, one of the things is that they're incapable of individuality. And, uh, so whether Wiener is exceptional or whether if some exceptional person of, of some exceptional Eloy arose, he could arouse uh, individuality in the other Eloy, uh, one doesn't know. But there does seem to be that slight contradiction between Wiener having a personality of her own and actually having uh, desires out of the ordinary and the rest of the Eloy. Yeah, it's not at all clear that it's consistent with the artistic vision, actually. I mean, as you say, there's a sense in which it's incomplete. Wiener's being an exception is incompatible with the portrayal he gives us of the Eloy. What I'm suggesting, though, is that it's as though, I mean, it's very, this is where I find your commentary on the difference between his artistic vision and his own, let's say, ideological commitments so compelling because it seems as though, you know, at the end of the day, Wells couldn't resist but write that last sentence as beautifully as he does as a kind of testament to what he himself perceives as what is fundamental in human nature, even against his suggestion that that could, as it were, be evolved out of existence, that he, he refuses to write a story in which that actually happens. Because he knows from his own experience of life that life cannot be entirely reduced to uh, rational formulae. And actually, he was always very, well, not always, but he was quite conflicted about religion as well. I mean, he was uh, irreligious and didn't believe in God. But on the other hand, he often talked as if there was a God and so on. So he was conflicted on uh, many different levels. And that's why he's so interesting a figure, or one of the reasons he's so interesting a figure, because the problems, the difficulties he has are problems at a lower level that millions of people now have. Mm. I'm going to change, change gears a little bit here, so to speak, with the next question from Nicholas. Dear Dr. Daniels, he begins, you have written on perils brought about by the expansion of the human rights in, in recent decades. I have read that H.G. Wells is credited with the inspiration for the UN's Charter of Human Rights. Could you comment on any connection between Wells' ideas of the rights of man and the expansion of rights in recent times, perhaps contrasting to Paine's idea of rights? Um, well, I'm not, I'm not sure what I would say about that. Again, Wells would be, on the one hand, in favor of codes that would, uh, rational codes that would channel life in a certain way. But at the same time, he's fully aware that life can't be channeled in that way. So he's both pro-bureaucratic and anti-bureaucratic. I don't know that I have anything more uh, to say about that. 
Another question here that pertains to Wells's characterization in section four about the the time traveler, where he speaks of the quote close resemblance of the sexes uh, in the fu- people of the future whom he has observed, and then saying that the the way in which Wells might have understood the distinction of the sexes in his own time has completely disappeared uh, because of the absence of any physical force that leads to the differentiation of the sexes uh, in the context of the family. Uh, and the questioner asks, what led the time traveler and perhaps Wells himself to these conclusions, and how is it that the contemporary view that sex differences are in no sense innate, but rather socially constructed, appears to have been anticipated in an early work by Wells written in the 19th century. Well, Wells, of course, was extremely enthusiastic about sex. And, uh, and he was very pleased when he found women who were equally uh, enthusiastic. And it was obviously one of the things that he found uh, Uh, most interesting and rewarding in life. So I suppose when he's trying to paint a picture of a life in which which everything has been smoothed away, it's natural that the difficulties of it, because he he did have a lot of personal difficulties, it was natural for him to think that um, sexual differences would be, uh, if not, quite erased, at least much, much reduced. Would you comment on that in relation to this kind of annihilation of the family? I mean, it's no secret that the uh, the communists sought to annihilate the family. Why is that? Is the family one of the, the greatest obstacles to technocratic uh, I, I think, uh, power? Yes. Yeah. I think that that's so, uh, that the family is a place which can't be entirely controlled from outside. Whereas Wells, as I mentioned, was in favor of, he was in favor of the dissolution of the family. He wanted the state, in essence, to be the father of the child, at least in the support of the child. He didn't particularly want any father to be, to have any uh, relationship to any particular children. In that, of course, he was he followed a lot of socialists. And what he believed was, of course, that I mean, what he would have observed was that, uh, from his own experience, was that um, marriage, for example, could be extremely painful and was often very unsatisfactory. From which he concluded that the solution was to have no formal arrangements between men and women at all. And then if you had no formal arrangements, all that would subsist was great love and and um, passion. And when that disappeared, well, then you just dissolved the relationship and everything, and you went and found another relationship. And um, that was his view of how things should be. And he, having a very large uh, appetite himself, he managed to... Uh, more or less to live that for a, that kind of life for a, quite a long time and didn't really see his own situation as being exceptional. Did he, ha- did he have any children? Yes, he did. He did have children. I, he had uh, two sons, one of whom became an eminent uh, biologist and with whom he wrote a, a very successful book, G.P. Wells, who became a fellow of the Royal Society, which means that he was at the upper echelon of uh, British scientists. 
And he also had a uh, son by Rebecca West, a man called Anthony West, who wrote about his father, was a reasonably successful writer. Uh, so he did have children. But um, he managed to keep quite a few bulls, you know, if I may put it like this, quite a few bulls in the air. But he didn't see this as a consequence of his own particular situation as a brilliant man who made a lot of money very quickly and who continued to make a lot of money. He didn't see that as being uh, exceptional and that this wasn't a template for everyone in society. Because, of course, at the same time, he was an egalitarian. So he couldn't really say, well, it's all right for me because I'm rich and clever, but it's not all right for um, uh, a person in Preston or Liverpool. He's ideologically not capable of saying that, because if he were to say that, it would destroy his egalitarianism. Yeah, yeah, well, certainly that's a very widespread dynamic today. I think the numbers are pretty, not that I'm a uh, person keen on uh, the ideology of constant uh, metrics, but uh, the numbers are really in on the disasters that are a consequence on that destabilization at the most basic level of our uh, stable family, familial relationships, especially for children, but also for the, the people who are the, the parents in such uh, families. So it's it's interesting. It's very interesting to see here that, again, once again, Wells's artistic vision, it gives one real pause to see the way in which the, this, you know, where he himself foresaw that technological solution trending and what its consequences are. I'm going to turn to uh, just a couple of final questions before we conclude. One questioner asks, why is the time traveler's intellectual background as a scientist, his holding of a rational scientific worldview, at least prior to his discovery of time travel, important in understanding his view, that is to say the time traveler's view, of the relationship between the Eloi and the Morlocks? Might his view of each be different if he held, say, a priestly background, do you think? If he were of a priestly background, he probably wouldn't have undertaken the journey in the first place. But... Um, I think his explanation of the bifurcation of humanity into the Eloi and the Morlocks, I think that is the kind of explanation that any intelligent person uh, might have thought of. So I don't think it's specifically scientific. I think it's just a rational, an attempt at a rational explanation of what has happened. And I don't think he needed any technical ability or any technical knowledge to to come to his conclusions about the bifurcation. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm. Uh, and so, uh, if I may, if I may say, an intelligent priest who did go on that journey would also come to the very similar view about why why it had happened. That certainly seems to me a fair reading of the text here. At the risk of uh, of tilting into, dare I say it, a bit of measured optimism, I'm going to read one of the first paragraphs of the 10th section of the book. It is a law of nature we overlook that intellectual versatility is the compensation for change, danger, and trouble. An animal perfectly in harmony with its environment is a perfect mechanism. Nature never appeals to intelligence until habit and instinct are useless. 
There is no intelligence where there is no change and no need of change. Only those animals partake of intelligence that have to meet a huge variety of needs and dangers. The reason I want to read that, Tony, is uh, that in many respects seems to me a powerfully true statement. And in a way, it opens a possibility that the very instabilities and difficulties and challenges of our time is present the, the possibility, the opportunity, but also the necessity for serious thinking, for awaking out of a kind of slumber and in whatever way we can, putting our heads to the highest and best use in the crises and problems of our time. Any comment on that from you? Yes, what I would say is that he, what he's saying is that uh, difficulties are necessary condition for the exercise of intelligence, but unfortunately they're not sufficient. So it's perfectly possible to face all these challenges without the exercise of intelligence. Uh, and then, of course, the, the, there will be disastrous consequences for that lack of use of the intelligence. So I agree that it's, it's a possibility, but it, it's not that problems call forth the intelligence response. Well, that in a way is a, a good moment for us to end on precisely with the question of how each of us will grapple with the insights that Wells himself has and that you have shared with us so generously today. I'm going to read a, a lighthearted comment from a questioner as we conclude. Uh, here is uh, from Nicholas, thanking you so much, uh, both of us, for a what he calls a fantastic conversation. And then he continues, there are indeed two types of people in this world those that have heard and heard of and read Dr. Daniels and those who have not. That is a true injustice, he says. Tony, I cannot tell you how grateful we are to have you as a visitor of Ralston College for your lectures, uh, for your course in Rasselas, for the things we hope that we'll have you participate in here in Savannah and around the world. Thank you so very much for today. And I look forward to our next. Thank you for having invited me. Today's episode was a recording of a live online event. A lecture by Dr. Anthony Daniels, also known as Theodore Dalrymple, on the time machine by H.G. Wells. Dr. Daniels has lived a richly interesting and adventurous life, living and traveling and working through Africa, Latin America, North Korea, and the slums of England. He's also written about 30 books, many under pseudonyms, especially Theodore Dalrymple. You might begin with Life at the Bottom, the worldview that makes the underclass, in which Dalrymple reflects on his many years as a prison doctor in England. Other titles include Coups and Cocaine, Two Journeys in South America, Sweet Waste of America, Journeys Around Guatemala, The Wilder Shores of Marx, Our Culture, What's Left of It, the Mandarins and the Masses, and more recently, Midnight Maxims, pithy statements of insight and wisdom that you can read quickly, but which reward mulling over, over time. I should also mention that Dalrymple is also the teacher of Ralston College's first online course. It's a six-week course that explores a towering figure of English literature, Samuel Johnson, 
through a deep dive into his only novel, Rasselas, which he wrote in a single week to pay for his mother's funeral. Rasselas is a wonderful introduction to Samuel Johnson's humane realism, and you can hear the whole novel read aloud by Dalrymple himself in an audiobook he recorded just for this course. In Rasselas, you'll discover deep thought through great art. In Dalrymple, you'll find a wise and helpful guide. And in all of our courses, you'll be encouraged to ask fundamental questions, because there's never been a better, more necessary time to ask them than now. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Till next time.